With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When the ice breaks, when the heart shake in the town and the mocks the winter, the end of my love for now and you've spent your summer. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. This is our 82nd episode. Each week right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we'll take a trip back in time and bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago exactly as it happened and as it was reported by some of the greatest sports writers of all time. In this week's show, it's May 17th to May 23rd, 1971. It's playoff time, big stakes, bigger promotions, every day of basketball's playoffs. DraftKings will have $20,000 in total prizes up for grabs. The best part is it's free to get your shot at these daily cash prizes. DraftKings will be offering two free play pools Every day of the NBA playoffs, offering players a free shot at $20,000 in total prizes. DraftKings free-to-play pools are easy to enter. Just download the DraftKings app, go to pools, and choose from a wide variety of contests for an opportunity to win cash prizes. Those are free contests. All you have to do is answer a handful of questions around what you think is going to happen during that day's basketball games and track your results throughout the evening. Questions will range from which team will hit the most threes to which team will score first. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings app now and use promo code THPN, that's THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network, when you sign up to get your free shot at $20,000 in total prizes every day of the basketball playoffs. Head to DraftKings Pools page to get your shot at huge cash prizes. That's promo code THPN for a limited time only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. In addition to DraftKings, of course, we are also sponsored by the uh, newspapers.com website uh, they uh, enable us to access all the great news that we report to you each week from 50 years ago and we're also sponsored by the Breakwell Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario they're open for takeout right now so you can get some of the best craft beers produced in southern Ontario and probably some of the best pub food made on this entire planet if you like what we do uh, every day on Twitter and each week here on our podcast, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and subscribe to this podcast. Subscribers not only get early access to each week's uh, episode like this one, but we have a lot of very neat content that we put out strictly for the Patreon subscribers. Right now, in fact, they're getting uh, a two-part series on how all the um, news came about and how Scott 
Scotty Bowman departed the St. Louis Blues and eventually ended up with Montreal Canadiens. That's patreon.com slash hockey50years to subscribe to our podcast. Well, this week uh, marks the end of the games for the 1970-71 season that we uh, reported on. The Stanley Cup Final comes to a, a, an amazing, a great conclusion. And uh, the off-season news w- would start next. Uh, we're a little busy here right now. I'm actually uh, moving from where I live in Welland back to our hometown of Port Colborne. And we'll be doing that over the next couple of weeks. So we might not be quite as responsible responsive as we normally would be to emails questions and uh, things like that in fact the uh, home that we are moving to is a house that has never in its existence of 50 years had internet access and there aren't many places like that around in Canada but this is one that's never had internet access so we're going to be offline for a few di- days while we get everything arranged but we will give you the news that happened with the Stanley Cup final this week, and we start off with some off-season news that came out this week as well. The week began with a bit of sad news on Monday as we learned of the death of former National Hockey League star Art Jackson, who passed away in St. Catharines, Ontario. Art was 55, and he died of a heart attack while playing golf in the opening day tournament at the St. Catharines Golf Club. Art was a star center with the Toronto St. Michael's College Junior Team that won the Memorial Cup in 1933-34. Later, he played professionally with the Maple Leafs, the Bruins, and the New York Americans, and he was a member of Boston Stanley Cup winning team from 1941. And he was a brother of Harvey Busher Jackson, who was the one-time member of the Toronto Maple Leafs' great kid line with Joe Primo and Charlie Conacher. The American Division of the Professional Hockey Players Association, which represents uh, most of the minor league hockey players on the North American continent, met on the weekend and came up with a list of what they're calling uh, requests or demands on behalf of their membership. Uh, They're looking for a pension plan paid for by the American Hockey League, and they're also looking for a medical plan to protect players' health as well, again, with uh, contributions from the player and from the AHL. The players are also looking for a change in the arbitration process whereby uh, it's determined if there's a dispute between a player and a team what the contract amount might be if they can't agree on a contract. The league president now is the main arbiter there, just like in the NHL with Clarence Campbell. And they want that changed because the league president invariably sides with the team. By the way, if you're wondering who the officers of the uh, this minor league players union is, uh, Chuck Hamilton of the Hershey Bears was the president. Gary Deneen of Springfield is the vice president. And the secretary is Bob Butch Barber, also of the Hershey Bears. Eddie, the Jet Joyal of the Los Angeles Kings this week, underwent successful surgery to repair a chronically dislocated kneecap, as it's reported. Now, that really sounds like something that would be pretty difficult uh, to play through or to come back from. It was a two and a half hour operation, but the the, uh, doctor who performed the surgery says it was very successful and Eddie should be good as new. Jules Villemure, the New York Ranger goalie who uh, 
uh, Sheridan, the winning of the Vesna Trophy this season, made his debut this week in New York City as a harness racing driver. Now, this isn't anything new for Jills. This was not some publicity stunt. Jills has been driving harness racers for years, but mainly in Canada. This is the first time he's raced in the Big Apple. The race meet was held at Roosevelt Raceway. I think it's on Long Island. The top American Hockey League defenseman was named this week, and he is, and this is not a name that I would have expected, Marshall Johnson of the Cleveland Barons. Marshall Johnson is property of the NHL Minnesota North Stars, a longtime player for Canada's national team, and now a very successful player in the American Hockey League. Good old Alan Eagleson said this week that there's no real issues with Bobby Orr's contract negotiations and that the pact is basically 80% done. But wasn't it over a month ago that many news outlets breathlessly were reporting that it was all a done deal, that Bobby was going to get a a million dollars over over five years and Eagleson basically confirmed it back then? Well, what's the holdup? What's really going on? We've heard a few reasons why, but nobody's really telling us why Bobby Orr has not yet signed a new contract with the Bruins. The California Seals are apparently trying to peddle defenseman Carl Vadney with the main suitor being the Boston Brooms and other teams that are interested in Vadney are apparently the Montreal Canadiens, Chicago Blackhawks meeting right now in the Stanley Cup final and of course the New York Rangers would like to have Vadney as well. More Seals news. The on-again, off-again appointment of Gary Young as Seals general manager was finally confirmed as a, confirmed as a fact this week, we think. At least Charles O. Finley, the owner, admitted that Young is the guy that, that he wants for the position. And when he was talking about this... Uh, He must have had Young on the job, really, because he said the Seals were also ready to announce a significant trade imminently, as the uh, report out of Oakland said. Uh, We mentioned earlier that the Carol Vadney rumors, but there's no indication that this particular deal that is being cooked up would involve Vadney. That was uh, earlier in the week. In fact, the deal did not involve Carl Vadney. On the weekend, the Seals announced that uh, their, their, one of their top scorers, center Dennis Hextall, a truculent sort who uh, is as mean as he is skilled, uh, he was traded to the Minnesota North Stars for two players, centers Walter McKechnie and Joey Johnson. Interestingly, the top scorer on a team goes to another score, a team in the same division for two guys who couldn't even make the NHL club. Both of them, McKechnie and Johnson, played most of last season with the American Hockey League Cleveland Barons. And a little bit more Seals news is as well. Veteran center Earl Ingerfield announced his retirement from hockey this week. Earl's been bothered the last couple of years by a series of injuries, most serious being some very uh, bad knees. And the uh, he's now feels it's time to give up on the ice wars. And you can look for Earl Ingerfield to get into the coaching field in the not too distant future. And the Minnesota North Stars. Uh, A lot of speculation around that team this week on which goalies are going to protect. They actually have five in their organization who are considered uh, regular NHLers or good prospects. They're going to protect Cesar Maniego and Gilles Gilbert in the interleague draft, intra-league draft, sorry. And that will leave the veteran Gumpersley 
available to any team that wants to claim them for 40 grand. Most uh, people uh, feel that Gump is fairly safe. Ren Blair, the North Star's general manager, is gambling that Gump's uh, $50,000 a year salary and his age would discourage other NHL teams from choosing him in the draft. But there's talk that Punch Imlac, who is bothered neither by a player's salary or his age, might grab Gump in this draft. Gump doesn't worry about how old the guy is and he has no problem spending the Knox family's dollars. Punch likes the old guys. That could be a spot where Gump Worsley could land with the Sabres. And we go from talk of a 40-year-old veteran to a raw kid. The uh, Ontario Hockey Association Junior A circuit held their uh, midget priority draft, I think they called it back then this week. And the first overall selection actually was predicted by an NHL player last week. Rosaire Paymon told anyone who'd listen that the first pick would be his 15-year-old little brother, Wilf Paymont, and he was taken as the first player overall. A little bit of uh, Maple Leafs award news. Bobby Bond, the hard rock defenseman who stabilized the Toronto Maple Leafs Blue Line Brigade in this past season, was named the winner of the J.P. Bickle Memorial Cup by the directors of the Maple Leaf Hockey Club. Bond had toiled for the Leafs during 11 seasons, starting in 1956, but he went to the Oakland Seals in the 1967 expansion draft. I believe he was the first uh, Seal player taken. After one season in Oakland, he was traded to Detroit, where he played a couple years, and then in November of this year, Detroit let him go to the Buffalo Sabres, who traded him to St. Louis, who then swapped him again to the Leafs in exchange for left-winger Britt Selby. The Bickle Cup is kind of a legendary award for Maple Leaf fans. It's awarded at such times and for such results as may be designated by the directors of the Maple Leaf Hockey Club, but it is only awarded in years in which the team makes the Stanley Cup playoffs. In naming Bond the winner, it was stressed he always exemplified the image of what a Maple Leaf hockey player should be. Previous winners of the cup were uh, Ted Kennedy in 53 and 55, Harry Lumley, Todd Sloan, George Armstrong, Bob Pulford, Johnny Bauer, Red Kelly, Alan Stanley, Terry Sawchuck, and the great Tim Horton. Philadelphia Flyers this week confirmed what everyone seemed to know that they're moving their training camp. It's going from Quebec City a little farther west. They're going to set up shop September in Ottawa, Ontario. A little bit of St. Louis Blues organizational news. John Choice, uh, who actually was mentioned as a replacement for Scotty Bowman with the Blues. And you would know that, by the way, if you're one of our Patreon subscribers, because that's in a special series on Scotty Bowman that we're doing right now. Well, John Choice has been appointed a general manager in the Blues organization, and that will be with the Kansas City Blues, their farm team in the Central Hockey League. A little Detroit Red Wings news. The Red Wings and San Diego Gulls of the Western Hockey League have severed their five-year working agreement. 
The Gulls general manager, Coach Max McNabb, said, I just feel somewhere along the line it wouldn't be a happy marriage, so we will not be entering into any future deal there. And you gotta wonder if an old-time hockey guy like Max McNabb was disenchanted with the Red Wings' new age GM college man, Ned Harkness. Some Eastern Hockey League news. The owners of the Nashville Dixie Flyers advised the league that they would not ice a team for the 1971-72 season because, and I don't really understand this, there are too many scheduling conflicts with the arena. Now, the Dixie Flyers are the only game in town as far as as hockey goes. They're a minor league team, but they couldn't make a schedule work for the Eastern Hockey League. That was a little disappointing for us in Port Colborne because the Dixie Flyers held their training camp every fall at the Westside Arena in Port Colborne. The Eastern Hockey League also announced that there would be a new franchise in the loop this year and that would be located in St. Petersburg, Florida. There was no mention of any uh, National Hockey League affiliation with that particular club, however. We are going to t- uh, talk about the subject of this a little bit later in the show, but uh, we did want to mention that the National Hockey League Players Association in uh, contract negotiations is demanding a cut of all pay TV revenues that the NHL teams receive. And the re- this is a result of the Blackhawks refusing to show their games, uh, their home playoff games and regular season games to home fans in Chicago and instead uh, showing them in theaters on closed circuit TV and we'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about the Stanley Cup. Here's a rumor I can't uh, attribute to just one writer or one source because it seemed to be everywhere this week but NHL expansion was a very hot rumor going around the Stanley Cup playoffs. The consensus from everything that we heard was that the the NHL would expand to 16 teams, way too many, by the 1973-74 season. And the two likeliest destinations for expansion teams were Long Island, New York, with that brand spanking new arena being built, and uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, yeah. That'll go well. Jim Proudfoot of the Toronto Stars says that a hot coaching prospect for the Montreal Canadiens, should they dump Al McNeil, is, and he doesn't name Scotty Bowman. He says a guy that the Habs could be looking at quite seriously is Marcel Pronovo, who played for the Leafs and the Red Wings in the NHL. Uh, He was a coach at Tulsa in the Central League this year, apparently did a very good job. Uh, a good uh, Quebec guy, very popular in the province, very smart hockey man, and this rumor actually makes a lot of sense. Well, Jim Proudfoot wasn't reporting Scotty Bowman was going to the Canadians, but guess what? There was an Ottawa newspaper that was, and that's a uh, a uh, columnist by the name of Jack Kaufman. Uh, they're reporting that Scotty would take over as general manager of the Canadians with Sam Pollock leaving the Habs. But Sam has another job lined up, according to uh, this paper. Sam will become the president of the National Hockey League to replace Clarence Campbell, who's about to resign. 
But this same columnist, Jack Hoffman, he was basically reporting what people were uh, telling him. He wasn't making this stuff up. Uh, he did not report who his sources were, but they were interesting. Uh, this is another scenario that Jack Hoffman uh, speculated on. He said, one chap is ready to bet money that Scotty is moving back into the Canadians organization, but through Quebec City. He said that Bowman would be named coach of the Voyageurs, which is Montreal's American Hockey League team, and that team would be shifted to Quebec City. Uh, Kaufman told this source that Scotty would never go to the minors after being a GM coach in the NHL, but he said the Canadians will make it attractive enough for Bowman and for the Quebec fans by keeping Guy Lafleur in the American Hockey League with that Quebec team for his first professional season. Guy Lafleur is going to be way too good to be playing in the minors. Well, a lot of our shows of the last couple of weeks, we talked about the Memorial Cup, the, the Junior A Championship of Canada, and the Memorial Cup final between the Quebec Remparts and the Western champ Edmonton Oil Kings was held this week despite protestations from the uh, Ontario Hockey Association who claimed, and they were right, there was an agreement in place whereby Ontario and Quebec were not going to play the Western teams because they play by different rules covering player eligibility than the Eastern teams do, and they didn't felt it was right to play a Western team. Well, after St. Catharines forfeited the series by refusing to return to Quebec for a sixth game, uh, Quebec reneged on the deal and then negotiated a best-of-three series with the Edmonton Oil Kings. Now, the St. Catharines Club, if you'll remember, they refused because of the treatment uh, their players and team personnel had, and they did not want to risk the same type of violence and the chance of injury, risk of injury, by going back to Quebec. Now, the uh, St. Catharines Club actually went to the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association and requested that uh, they would return to the province of Quebec, but they, they asked that the game, the sixth game from Quebec, be moved to Montreal and they would be happy to play the sixth game there. That was a non-starter for the Remparts. They absolutely refused and the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association backed up the Remparts. Here's a factor in this whole thing that a lot of people these days, 50 years later of course, do not remember and probably weren't even aware of at the time. The St. Catharines Club held seventh game in the series and originally they had planned to play that seventh game at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto in order to accommodate the many St. Catharines fans who couldn't get uh, tickets for the smallish Garden City Arena. Well the St. Catharines Club offered to relinquish their seventh game advantage and play the deciding seventh game if it was necessary in the Montreal Forum instead of Maple Leaf Gardens. And even that very generous offer was rebuked by both the Quebec team and the CAHA. And the CAHA president, Earl Dawson, he refused, according to several reports, he refused to attend the series at all. And when he was asked why, he said he didn't want to go there to get killed. Well, the hockey in the best of three series was actually quite unremarkable. Uh, 
The Quebec fans are probably trying to redeem themselves for the horrible behavior that they exhibited against St. Catharines. And I'm not exonerating St. Catharines for the, the rough stuff that they pulled off, but the Quebec fans uh, crossed many, many lines. Well, they gave the Oil Kings a very warm welcome. Over 2,000 of them showed up at the airport to greet the Oil Kings as they landed in Quebec for the series. Well, maybe a warm welcome uh, lulled the Oil Kings into a, a false sense of security. Uh, although there wasn't any chaos, there wasn't any real uh, bad incidents that take place, the Ramparts... Uh, Won the series in two straight game over the Oil Kings. Uh, Guy Lafleur and the other uh, big Quebec star Jacques Richard played played huge roles in the two two win. But the most valuable player for the Quebec Ramparts, probably through the entire Memorial Cup playoffs, was goalie Michel de Guise who didn't even play for the Ramparts during the past season, but under that crazy CAHA rule that they allow some teams to take advantage of, Quebec City picked him up from league mate Sorel, and they used him throughout the playoffs, and without him, they would not have gotten past any of the teams, that well, many of the teams that they played, especially St. Catharines. St. Catharines probably would have blown them out pretty quickly. De Guise was the story in that series. Of course, the big story this week, uh, we left that one for last, of course, is the uh, Stanley Cup Final, Game 7, Tuesday night, Chicago Stadium, and the CBS Television Network, said this is such a big deal we are preempting a tv show and we are going to broadcast the game nationally and it was nationally everywhere except chicago and we'll get to that in a minute game of course between montreal canadians and chicago blackhawks at chicago stadium the canadians had defied both the odds makers and all the uh, hockey experts that were spouting their knowledge around to everyone, they defied those guys by upsetting the powerful Boston Bruins who weren't supposed to uh, lose a game throughout the playoffs, according to everybody that uh, would listen. Uh, They went into the game as slight underdogs, mainly probably the only reason because the contest was being held at Chicago Stadium, which is a difficult place to play in the regular season and would be even more so in a Stanley Cup final seventh game, you would think. It was revealed during the sixth game on Sunday in Montreal that Habs coach Al McNeil and general manager Sammy Pollock each had a security detail made up of Montreal police detectives. What happened was the Canadian switchboard had received, and and apparently a couple of newspapers as well, had received threats upon the lives of both McNeil and Pollock. The threats were made, and and, uh, uh, according to police, by French-speaking callers, and they were threatening McNeil and Pollock because they did not have a French heritage. Montreal police took these threats extremely seriously and had detectives around both. In fact, Al McNeil coached Game 6 with plainclothesmen surrounding him on the Montreal bench. And there's quite a photo that we will have in our Twitter feed this week that shows Al McNeil with under the watchful eye of the Montreal police, a plainclothesman right there beside him. Al McNeil, by the way, uh, I don't know who brought this out first, but somebody reported that Al... Uh, 
had joked that even though his coaching job was in jeopardy, he wasn't worried about leaving Montreal because he was on at least one team's protected list, the Montreal Police protected list. An interesting little factoid brought to us by Jack Dolmage of the Windsor Star, who informed his readers that this would be only the eighth Stanley Cup final to go the full seven-game limit. The last one, for those of you at home who were counting, was in 1965 when the Canadians defeated the Blackhawks 4-0 at the Forum to claim the 65 Stanley Cup. Perhaps the most memorable of all previous seven-game finals was 1942 when the Toronto Maple Leafs lost the first three games of that series to the Detroit Red Wings and then made the comeback of all comebacks to win four straight and the 42 Stanley Cup. As we mentioned, the CBS Television Network in the United States and, of course, the CBC in Canada would televise the game and, of course, the French Language Network in Canada as well would televise it uh, the seventh game nationally but if you were a Chicago Blackhawks fan and wanted to see your team in Chicago it wasn't going to be easy in fact it was going to be almost impossible that is unless you uh, had six dollars and were able to get a ticket at one of several theaters that dollar bill Wirtz, the owner of the Blackhawks uh, was promoting he exercised his antiquated broadcast rights and refused to allow the game to be shown on Chicago home TV so he could get folks into the theaters at $6 a pop. Fans weren't happy. Even the Toronto, or sorry, the Chicago City Council uh, approached Wirtz and asked him to lift the ban for the seventh game. Dollar Bill would have none of that. Bob Verdi of the Chicago Tribune, uh, gave us a, a bit of an overview of what the TV situation was around Chicago for Game 7. He writes that the Blackhawk hockey fans, uh, with a will and a way to travel a little bit, can watch the seventh game on three TV channels that are fairly near to Chicago and just outside the broadcast right territory. The Columbia Broadcasting System, of course, had agreed to televise the uh, Tuesday night game and said only Chicago would be the uh, city in the United States blacked out. It would be available everywhere else. But three outlying CBS affiliates would televise the game. WCEE Channel 23 in Rockford, Illinois. WISN, Channel 12 in Milwaukee. And WSHT Channel 22 in South Bend, Indiana. Now this is just how, I, I can't think of any other word than stupid the National Hockey League was back then and continues to be 50 years later probably. Don Ruck was the National Hockey League Vice President and Director of Special Services and when he learned that the game was being uh, broadcast nationally, he said he considered this one of the finest things to ever happen to our sport. And yet, they were taking a seventh game in the Stanley Cup final away from home fans in one of their cities. And this is one of the finest things ever to happen to the National Hockey League. Give your head a shake, Don. 
There would be five locations that the game would be shown in Chicago on closed circuit TV if you didn't want to travel to be able to pick up those three outlying stations. Uh, the game was going to be shown at the Pickwick in Park Ridge, the Ritz in Berwyn, the Colony at 58th and Kenzie, the Beverly at 96th and Ashland, and the Bismarck Theater in the Loop. Tickets were $6 a piece, and that's a nice little bit of pure profit that our, uh, Bill Wirtz didn't even have to share with the player. Now, there was a lot of speculation as we went to Game 7 on the future of the Montreal coach, Al McNeil. Uh, everybody was by now aware of the blow-up, the... Uh, not violent, but acerbic attack by Henry Richard on his coach, calling him incompetent, the worst coach I ever played for. Uh, we can't report on all the series here, but again, a consensus among writers seemed to be that Al would leave the Montreal coaching post uh, right after the playoffs were over, and the only question seemed to be, would he go voluntarily or would he be summarily dismissed by Montreal management? To a man, each of the Canadians, including Henry Richard, professed to be squarely behind the beleaguered coach no matter what the outcome of that seventh game would be. The game itself, we'll get to that now. It was a classic. I thought it was anyway, as I watched it 50 years ago. A more dramatic script couldn't have been written. It was a hot, sticky evening in Chicago Stadium, and that made the ice soft and sticky, and that may have been the great equalizer for a tired Montreal team and a Chicago team, which one would think would be boosted by the raucous home ice crowd. We're going to let Pat Curran of the Montreal Gazette tell the story of the game. Pat writes, Henry Richard sat coolly in the eye of the storm. Champagne bottles popped. Everyone was shouting and it seemed every would-be Montreal Canadiens fan around the Windy City had jumped on the Stanley Cup bandwagon. But hidden in the delirious throng sitting calmly while a small group of writers braved champagne showers, Henry Richard kept his sanity. Henry sat in the exact same spot where only last Thursday he had blasted his coach in an unprecedented fit of anger. And with smiles of relief and victory, he talked about his two big goals that turned the tide as the Canadians staged another tremendous comeback to beat the Chicago Blackhawks 3-2 in the showdown game of the 1971 Stanley Cup Final. On Richard's two goals, first two goals of the series, after Jacques Lemaire had beaten hot goalie Tony Esposito on a high bullet from outside the blue line, the Canadians had rallied from a 2-0 deficit to take the win. Dennis Hull had scored on a power play for Chicago in the first period, while only Ken Dryden's superb goaltending kept them from getting any more. It was 2-0 for the home forces when Danny O'Shea connected that the 8-minute mark of the middle period and that's when it looked like the Hawks could really uh, start thinking about taking this Stanley Cup. We did the first one in 10 years. Richard said that was the greatest. Referring to his 10th Stanley Cup victory. Who's had 10 Stanley Cup wins? Never happen again. Richard said the greatest 
win because we're always the underdogs this year. First against Boston and then in this series. And for me, it's a great relief. It was obvious from the start the 35-year-old Richard was going to give it everything he had. And he did exactly that. He came through with two picture play goals. Henry scored the game winner. Uh, Lemaire had actually got Montreal into the game. We'll talk about that in a minute. But then Henry scored two, the tying and winning goals. And this is what the winning goal sounded like. La point. Starting out with Hull. Coral. And tied up behind the net. Here's Richard going in on goal. Yes, he scores! Richard makes the well, at the game's end, the Canadians threw their sticks high in the air, and Dryden was the first to be mobbed by teammates before President Clarence Campbell presented the Stanley Cup to the Montreal team for the 16th time. But many of them, led by big Peter Mahovlich, made a point of congratulating personally Coach Al McNeil. At least one of the players took a stand for McNeil afterwards. I hope he's back, said Jacques Lemaire. Is there anyone who doesn't make a few mistakes? It was Lemaire's surprising goal that started Canadians on their big comeback, and we will give you the description from Danny Gallivan and Dick Irvin as they talk about this goal that, as far as everyone else could see, as far as I was concerned, this turned the entire game. The Hawks were leading 2 nothing at this point. Well, they're leading the attack now. Comes down, winds up for the shot. Oh! long shot! And Canadians right back into contention. It's two to one for Chicago. That makes it two to one. A tough break for Tony Esposito. That has to be the longest goal scored in this playoff year into a net occupied by a goaltender as Lemaire winds up just as he hits the red line and lets it go about 15 feet in front of the blue line. Esposito's on his knees. Jacques Lemaire explained how he scored this goal that uh, turned the, the game and, in fact, the, the entire series around. Jacques said, They told us that Esposito was weak on high shots, but in the last game here, we did everything and we couldn't beat him up high. I had a lot on that shot with lots of time because the defense started backing in. When it got tough... Our team got good, and that's why we won. Of course, one of the biggest reasons for the Canadians' victory was the rookie goalie, Ken Dryden. Late in the game, it well, actually throughout the game, but it took three great stops, especially one late in the game, for the Canadians to win. Hardly a fan in the 21,000 Jam Stadium could believe how Dryden had stopped Jimmy Pappen at the side of the Montreal net late in the game. Keith Magnuson had shot from the right boards for a save by the giant Montreal goalie, and Pappen took the rebound just three feet out. He snapped the quick shot he didn't waste any time, only to somehow see Dryden's leg snake out from the middle of nowhere to deny the goal. Probably on that save alone, that capacity crowd in Chicago Stadium would believe that Dryden, who was the first rookie to help a Stanley Cup winner since Frank McCool with the Leafs in 1945, they to a person probably believed that Dryden deserved the Conn Smythe Trophy 
$1,500 prize money and the brand new car that goes with it. Asked how he managed to make such a miraculous stop, Dryden said, I saw Magnuson shoot and I knew Pappen would be right there at the goal mount. It was just instinct. I guess that I just shoved out my leg to make the save and the puck hit it. All told, Ken Dryden made 31 stops in this game compared to 22 by Esposito. Dryden, accepting the Conn Smythe Trophy, was late coming into the dressing room when someone reached for a bottle of champagne. Ken says, if you got any 7-up, I'd rather have that. I just don't know what to say about the trophy with everything coming on top of the Stanley Cup. And I just don't know what to say about this team. At times, it got discouraging the way things uh, were. We were behind and we were always fighting back. But in the end, this was most exciting. Jean Beliveau, the uh, team's captain, people feel this may have been his last game. Well... He summed up the victory in one short emotional sentence. Jean said, this just shows where the heart is. To sum up the series, the Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, just how this all kind of looked to uh, us in the uh, as hockey fans 50 years ago, I, I'm going to read to you a... Uh, a column by a very neutral observer and a guy who's not even considered a hockey guy, but this is Joe Falls in the Detroit Free Press. Joe's a baseball guy more than anything else. He's a sports editor of one of the top newspapers in the United States, and he was at every game, and these were Joe's observations on the Montreal Canadiens. The Montreal Canadiens are more than a hockey team. They're a damned legend. What says it better? The way this team rallied to win the Stanley Cup than the fact defenseman Jacques LaPerriere played the final five games of this series with a broken arm. Not a fractured arm or even a bruised one as he told people after the game. A busted arm. A busted left arm. And that is what championships are made of. While the mob scene uh, still went on out on the ice in Chicago Stadium after that magnificent victory by the Habs, Le Perrier was the first player in the Montreal dressing room. He threw his stick down and his gloves and slumped on the seat in front of his locker and then he broke into a smile. Well, the cast goes on tomorrow, he says. This thing's been killing me for almost two weeks. Le Perrier, another of the veterans who reached back for this one more grab at glory, broke the arm in the second game, which took place, of course, in Chicago. It became the biggest secret since the Manhattan Project. The Stanley Cup Finals are no time to go out with broken arms. Every game, every period... They shut the door of the dressing room and froze the arm so that Big Jacques could carry on. His refusal to quit was the symbol of this Montreal victory. For this team, though torn by dissension and rife with rumors that several of its big stars would quit, Captain John Bellabo included, kept fighting back when fighting seemed senseless. This was a great victory for Al McNeil, the rookie coach who took over in the middle of the season when the Montreal players all but ran Claude Ruel out of the job. It's been no secret that the team, a difficult one to handle because of its fading skills and high-priced talent, was unhappy with the way McNeil was doing things. 
Only little Henry Richard, in a moment of furious anger, had the courage to speak of what others were saying and thinking. But McNeil, he remained unruffled through it all. He refused to get into any word battles with his players or even recognize that there was anything remotely close to disharmony on this team. For he too, in his way, just as Le Perrier did in his way, knew that something was greater was involved than mere differences among men. The Montreal spirit, the legend of the Canadians, was at stake, and so Al McNeil kept quiet. And now in the tumult of the dressing room, with everyone congratulating him, McNeil said simply, I don't know the meaning of the word dissension. Some say Al may quit, maybe even as soon as this coming Wednesday. Be that as it may, this is his moment, and no coach ever enjoyed a finer one. Al McNeil showed his class in Montreal last Sunday by constantly patting Richard on the seat of the pants when he came off the ice. And this, mind you, right out in the open in front of those frantic French fans, one of whom had threatened his life after Richard had leveled his blast at the coach. Now, McNeil did go as wild as any of his players in the post-game celebrating on the ice, but he regained his composure almost immediately once he got into the dressing room. Al said, I thought we could do it. We had come back before, and I figured we could do it again. Finally, there was big John Beliveau, the unflappable leader of his team, sitting there quietly while his younger, more demonstrative teammates were going wild. John said, we never quit. And it would have been easy to do, but we kept working and skating, and that is what this game is all about. That plus a measure of intestinal fortitude. So that is our show this week, everyone. The last this season that will involve reporting on the playing of games. And what a way for this 1970-71 season, a most memorable season for so many reasons. What a way for it to end. What did we learn from this final playing week of the season? Well, there was a lot of hockey rumors flying around and we reported on a lot of that player speculation. We learned the identity of the Memorial Cup champion for 1971. The Kings of Junior A hockey would be the Quebec Remparts. And of course, we learned that the Montreal Canadiens reverted to former glory with the stirring performances they captured the 1971 Stanley Cup. But there were things that we didn't find out this week that would keep us tuned into the hockey world for a little bit longer. And we're going to have that. Next week, we're going to talk about a hockey movie being filmed at Maple Leaf Gardens. We'll have a lighthearted look at the 1980 Stanley Cup Finals, as described by Jim Coleman in 1971. And with the NHL roster deadline coming up, there are a few trades, there's lots of rumors, and a few other transactions will make our news feed. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and I can't thank him enough for all his hard work. He's a true media professional, and he does a great job with our show here. Andy also produces other podcasts, and if you're interested in putting something together, get a hold of me, I'll hook you up with Andy, and maybe you guys can have a show as well. The uh, very popular Juno-nominated 
A Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. And if you ever get a chance to see them perform live, and they're hoping to get back out and doing concerts this year, if things open up a little bit, don't miss the opportunity. They put on a great show. Other music in the podcast and the sound effects are all uh, created by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Global Mail, and of course the many fine publications found at our sponsor newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter every day at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. We're of course every week on the Hockey Podcast Network and we have a WordPress site where we have news about our show at Hockey50YearsAgo.com. Thanks again for everyone who tunes into the show. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the-